going on? It's Chris Carino. This is the Voice of the Nets podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening and subscribing. We're heading into the final week of the regular season for Brooklyn. The NBA playoffs will be starting after that. Next week, we'll do a deep dive into a season in review and a playoff preview. And bring on uh, Tim Capstraw, Sarah Kustak. We'll talk about that, get into that next week. The Nets, Brooklyn Bridges, Mikel Bridges, the player of the week in the Eastern Conference, helping lead the Nets to three consecutive wins this week, putting them just a magic number of two away from clinching the sixth spot in the Eastern Conference. So while we have this little lull, though, the little lull before the start of the NBA playoffs, thought it'd be a great idea to, uh, to bring on one of my Fordham Broadcasting brothers. The great Jack Curry from Yes Network. You see him covering the Yankees and being on that Yankee uh, studio pre- and post-game show throughout the course of the baseball season. Uh, Jack is the author of three books. He wrote one with uh, David Cohn called Full Count, another with Paul O'Neill called Swinging a Hit. And his latest book comes out in May. It's called The 1998 Yankees, The Inside Story of the Greatest Baseball Team Ever. I am a lifelong Yankee fan. Jack Curry has uh, an interesting broadcasting career. We'll get into the origins of it, talk about his interest and so much more. Uh, I thought this was a, a really fun conversation. Hope you enjoy it too with Yes Network's Jack Curry right here on The Voice of the Nets. So Jack Curry, it's so great to have you on here, The Voice of the Nets, but I, I want to admit you're not the, fir- the first Hudson Catholic high school in Jersey City where you went to school. You're not the first Hudson Catholic grad that we've had here on the program. Do you want to venture a guess as to who the other guy might have been? I'm going to guess that it would have been the great Jim Spinarkle, who... Uh, <laughs> you, and you guessed incorrectly. Michael Corrin? <laughs> Michael Corrin. There All we right. go. Wow, you could... Yeah. Wow, I had a 50, Jim would have been the other one. I had a 50-50 chance of being correct, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I whiffed. Give me an F on that one. Are there, other, are there other famous Hudson Catholic alums that we can go to besides Michael Corn, Jim Spinarkle, and Jack Curry? Well, there, there are, Chris, but now you've put me on the spot because if I don't <laughs> mention everyone under the sun, I'm going to get texts right, and emails well, saying, why didn't well, yeah, you mention me? <laughs> yeah, we can't. We got to cut that out. All right. Uh, but I do know the thing that you and I have in common, obviously, is that we're both f- part of the Fordham Broadcasting Mafia. Um, your, your class of what at Fordham? 86. 86. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm 92. You would have been in the era of like Bob Papa, right? Was Bob, I believe it was, was he uh, on, with, at WFEV with you? Bob and I both graduated in 86. Bob was the play-by-play voice. I was the analyst. Uh, color commentator, whatever you want to call it. So we did a ton of football, a ton of basketball. And I used to marvel at how good Bob was at his job, even at that age. I was trying to understand what defenses teams were playing against Fordham to be able to talk about how that backdoor play worked out. And Bob was so smooth. I'm not surprised at all at the levels that he has reached in his career because you could see that when he was 20, 21 years old. And I took over for Bob as the voice of the Nets. Uh, Bob's a longtime radio voice of the Giants. And interestingly, I, I actually got an internship with Bob my senior year at Fordham. And that's how I kind of, my foray into things. But it's, it's interesting also because my partner, when I was broadcasting games for Fordham in the late in the early 90s, was Mike Puma, who's the beat writer for the <laughs> New York Post, so for the Mets. So it was like I had a Mets, a future Mets writer, long time with me, and and Bob and you, a future Yankees writer, down the road, kind of really symbiotic relationships we've had here. A little interesting comparison there, and we've got some more <laughs> similarities. And I don't know what what Puma's stance was or what his approach was, and I know Mike very well, obviously, and I don't know about you. Either. When I was at Fordham, Chris, for me, it was both journalism on the print and broadcast side I was interested in because I thought it meant twice as many jobs when I got out of college. I should say twice as many job opportunities. We'll see if any of those panned out. But I always thought I was a better writer. I always thought that journalism on the print side was where I would land. 
And I ended up at the New York Times for over 20 years, but now I've had this second life at Yes, where I've been for about 13 or 14 years. So I, I appreciate all that Fordham helped give me in, in building up that strong background. You know, and, and you were, you know, nowadays, all the writers become in front of the camera at some point. You know, that became, that became the thing now. You have to kind of do that to, to sell, you know, for your career. You were like the first guy that I remember that made that jump. And it was a little bit of a, like people took a step back and went, wow, Jack's leaving the Times. He's one of the great, one of the great baseball writers at the New York Times. And he's leaving that to go to the Yes Network, you know, number one to go on a team side and then also to be in front of the camera and be in studio. Um, you're kind of groundbreaking in that regard. Was it, a, it, was it a big risk for you at the time, did you think? It's a great question, Chris. I had been at the Times for 22 years and thought that I would spend my entire career there. I always had people nudging me towards TV. And one of these people you know very well, Michael Kay, mm -hmm. another Fordham grad and yep. the play-by-play -play voice of the Yankees. He would continually say to me, you should try TV. You should try TV. As much as I loved the times, I thought I had accomplished as much as I might accomplish there. I wasn't sure there were a lot more mountains to scale there. So it started to resonate with what Michael said. So I actually consulted Michael's agent at the time, Steve Lefkowitz, a man who has since passed away. And he said to me, I, I can help you get a job in TV. I'm not going to lie. The Times was offering a buyout. That helped make it more appealing because I had a cushion to fall back on if the TV thing didn't work out right away. Okay. And Lefkowitz got me four interviews and the Yes Network was the most interested in me. And was there a risk involved? Sure. I, I was a print guy moving over to the broadcast side. But I think what helped me, Chris, was I had been a guest on so many shows as New York Times baseball writer or New York Times baseball columnist that the fear or the tension or the nervousness about being on TV, that had disappeared. I remember one interview I did with Bruce Beck where I fumbled some words and really felt as if I did a poor job on TV. And I said to myself, wait a second. I'm a sports writer who's popping onto TV. I'm not supposed to be great at this. And that allayed any fears I had going forward. And to this day, I still feel that way, that the camera and the red light going on and the tension and the pressure of maybe having to talk about something controversial that just happened in the game. I thank Bruce Beck for that interview many years ago because that caused me to say, just go out there and have fun. Just be yourself. Everybody's got a great Bruce Beck story uh, in this town. Um, he's helped a lot of guys kind of make that transition too. Uh, you know, it just touched. Let, I'm going to go back to where the roots of your uh, broadcasting and journalism, even before Hudson Catholic, where it came into. But you, you mentioned the Times and your time as a writer of the Times. Just to tie in a little Nets connection, there's been there have been so many great writers who made their start as a Nets beat writer. I mean, from, you know, not that Woj was a, a beat writer, but I, I knew Woj from being around with the record or, you know, and uh, years ago, Chris Broussard started with the, with the New York Times, Lee Jenkins was on the net beat. I mean, they, you know, uh, other guys, Dennis D'Agostino, uh, well, Dennis D'Agostino with the Knicks was, was a, was a, uh, S, a PR guy, but, uh, uh, Dave D'Alessandro, another Fordham yes. guy. Fred Kerber uh, was on that beat for years. So you started, was it, was your, what was your first beat with the Times? So Chris, when I started at the Times, it was 1987. I was 22 years old and they hired me as something called a writing clerk, which basically meant I did a lot of clerical work, answering phones, getting coffee, perhaps doing research for other reporters. That was a 35 hour a week job. On my free time, I could do all the writing that I wanted. But of course it was the New York Times, which meant anytime you wanted to pitch a story, you had to send an editor an outline and you had to tell them why that story was valuable. But that job made me really hungry and getting inside the doors of the New York Times and seeing how things operated. You know this from, from your own career. Once you get inside somewhere, 
you start to feel that you belong. And, and that's what happened for me as a young writer at the Times. I would be thrilled if they allowed me to write 300 words about a college basketball game. I remember I went to a press conference and Rick Smits was still in college. And I think I wrote two paragraphs for the New York Times. And the fact that I'm telling you this, however many years later this is, it shows you how much that meant to me and how impactful yeah. that was. So that lasted about two years where you had to prove to them that you could actually be a full-time reporter. Then they put me on college basketball and college football, and I did that for about a year. My heart was always in baseball. I was always trying to convince them that baseball was where I needed to land. But in 1991, they said, we want you to start out on the Nets, just as you mentioned. It became a beat where a lot of people got their start. Not only the ones you mentioned, but Mike Wise of the Times was a Nets beat writer. Selena Roberts was a Nets beat writer. So I I loved being on a beat. Bill Fitch was the coach. I still to this day have a ton of respect for him for how much he taught me. Willis Reed was an executive and he was kind to a young guy who probably maybe didn't always ask the best questions. It was Derek Coleman's rookie year. So I covered everything about Derek Coleman. Uh, broke the story that he was signing with the Nets for, I think it was a five-year, $15 million deal at the time. So sure. it was a great learning experience for me. Uh, the team was not great. And so you had to find stories and you had to find ways to help make that team interesting. And after I did that for a year, the Times moved me over to a backup baseball writer. But then midway through the 91 season, I took over the Yankee beat and I've been covering baseball ever since. And and just as that that first Nets team that you covered was kind of setting the it was the seeds being planted for a net team that was pretty good quickly right after that. You know, they draft Kenny Anderson the next year, they hire Chuck Daly, they make the trade for Drazen Petrovic, and then there were a little snake bit there, you know, eventually, you know, Drazen passed away, Kenny would get hurt, the the whoopie damn do, the whole thing, you know, it kind of it was a it, it, it was always, yeah, great, great writers came through those doors and, and got their start. Um, Jack, before that, let's 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 veer back to the, the seeds that were planted for you to eventually where you would be. Uh, Jersey City guy. Um, I'm the I'm the type of guy I was I was 11. I used to do games into a tape recorder. <laughs> and eventually that became my career. I always say, if you can make a living doing something you did for fun when you were 11, you're, you're, you've got it pretty much figured out. Uh, what about you? What's your origin story into getting into the business and sports? So I grew up on a block in Jersey City, Bleecker Street, where I had six really close friends. I didn't have the tape recorder out, Chris, but if you ask my friends, when we were growing up, if we played a game of wiffle ball or stick ball, I had to do the lineups. We couldn't just have a game. I had to say, you're, you're going to be the Cincinnati Reds. So it was Pete Rose leading off, and then it was yeah. Joe Morgan. It was Johnny Bench. So the seeds of broadcasting started there. And when I was in the seventh grade, my elementary school, St. Anne's, I went up to an English teacher one day and said, how come we don't have a school newspaper? And I thanked this English teacher that he said, why don't you start one? And wow. I did. With his help, wow. I started a, a school newspaper now, it was nothing elaborate. It was a couple of pages. But that feeling of writing something and having people comment on it and liking or disliking something you had written, that, that's an adrenaline rush. And imagine, imagine being 12 or 13 years old and everybody in school is reading what, what you just wrote. So that, that print love started there. And like everybody in the tri-state area or in the country, probably, who likes baseball, I always thought I wanted to be a baseball player, but I was always mature enough to know you'd better have other things to think about. So yeah. high school sports editor, college sports editor, went to one baseball practice at Fordham, surveyed the field, thought I would make the team as a backup, but then said, well, what is that going to do for you? This is four, five, six hours a day. You're just getting acclimated to college. So I always, when I speak to young journalists, I, I always say, if you know what you want to do at an early age, as you just said, when you were 11, it, it really is an advantage, Chris. And yeah. my wife and I have this discussion because she worked in the business side, did a lot of marketing. And she said, well, some kids don't know what they want to do. 
I said, I understand that. I'm just saying from my side of things, by the time I was 13, I knew I would be in the sports world somewhere, most likely as a journalist. Did you play high school baseball? I played high school baseball at Hudson Catholic for three years. I started in my senior year. It took until my senior year to find a, a starting nod. I was a, a decent to good high school baseball player. I didn't make all county or anything like that, but I, I started and had a decent senior season. And as I said, I went to one Fordham baseball practice. They didn't have a field on campus at that time. It lasted about four and a half hours. No DoorDash, no Uber Eats back then. I got back to campus. There was no place to find any food. Sure, I, I could have walked over to Pugsley's and gotten a slice of pizza, but it actually was a watershed moment in my life because the next day it was off to the Ram, off to WFUV, and go in some places where I was probably going to be better than just a guy who was on the bench. Did you go to Fordham for the for the you know with the idea in mind of being a writer and and working at WFUV? One hundred percent. The schools that I considered were Fordham, Syracuse, and Temple. Visited Temple, visited Fordham, canceled the visit to Syracuse. I said Fordham <laughs> felt like home for me. The radio station was fantastic. I, I love the pedigree. I, I, I love the history, the alums. I, as a city kid growing up in Jersey City, I, I wanted to go somewhere and Fordham is its own oasis within the Bronx. But I, I liked being in the Bronx. I, I liked the availability of the city and the ability to get back to Manhattan whenever you wanted to. So it took one yeah. visit to Fordham to convince me that that was the place for me. And, you know, Fordham has so many broadcasting alums, you know, because there's always that that rivalry with Syracuse and Fordham. And I always say that the thing about Fordham is it's not just that Guys like Bob Papa, Michael Kay, who we've mentioned already here on the on the show, uh, Mike Breen, um, you know Ryan Rucco, Spiro Didis, Mikey Yam, all these guys that are working in the business. It's not so much that we went to Fordham together, but we also are New Yorkers. We're, we're like in this. We're from the tri-state area, and I think that's sort of the because people always think of that bond of Fordham. You know, um, even Tony Reale, another one. Um, there's this New York metropolitan area sort of sensibility that that made us kind of choose Fordham. Like my dad gave me the advice of, well, where do you want to be when you get out of school? And I said, well, I want to be in New York. And they said, well, he goes, well, why are you going to go anyplace else outside of New York to go to school? And I think we all kind of went in there, all of us that were, all these names were mentioning, we, we went to Fordham for the same reason. Like we're we grew up Yankee fans or Giant fans or Nick fans and Ned fans. And we just, we wanted to stay in the area. And that was what led us to Fordham. And then that actually led us into these different jobs with these teams. So it's, I always thought that that was it. It's the New York area connection, even as much as it is the Fordham connection. I love the way that you described that. I totally agree with you. All of those people that you just mentioned, I'm sure we're forgetting some others. I would throw yeah. John, Giannone, John Giannone as well yes. from MSG in there. Absolutely. But gr great advice by your dad. And I also give your dad credit for having that confidence in you because plenty of times I will tell young journalists, if you're from Boston or New York or DC, sometimes you do have to leave the area in order to come back. I'm good yeah. friends with uh, Don Burke. He was a former Yankee beat writer who's now an editor yes. at The Post. His son, Brendan, is, is a rising star. He's play-by-play -play for yeah. the Islanders. Just announced he's got a new baseball gig coming up. But Brendan yeah, was peacock. one who had to go yeah. do some minor league baseball, some minor league hockey to work his way back. So what your dad said, though, d definitely resonates because I was the same way. I, I didn't want to leave this area. I mean, look at all the teams we have the opportunity to latch onto and cover and and be impactful in, in whatever area of the uh, sports journalism field you end up in. I also feel like we connect to the audience in this area. Mm -hmm. You know, they know us. They know us as one of their own without being homers like like you would see in some smaller markets. Um, I know that I had a, a forensics coach in high school who had to drill the, the, the Yonkers accent out of me. You know, the word is... The word is taught, not taught. You know, like I get rid of that. <laughs> so you want to um, hear? You want to hear my word? Yes. I had a thick Jersey City accent, 
And one of the first sports reports I did, I talked about the Knicks playing a team called the Lakers. And they said, you can't say Lakers. It's the Lakers. So much like you, it didn't happen until I got to Fordham. I had to really concentrate on cleaning up the way that I pronounce things and trying not. Another word was A-S-K. Axe. I used to say yeah. axe. He axed him. It's not axed. It's asked him. So we're in the same boat with that. Yes. Yes. Um, I have a wife from Brooklyn who had the same issue with ask and X. Yeah. Same. <laughs> you know, you mentioned your, I talked about my dad. We were talking off before we came on. I mentioned that my dad had saved the Hank Aaron back pages of the daily news and we got him signed at a card show back in, in the Westchester County Center. And I lost my dad a while back and I always connect with that moment and having that. And I remember also him going to the Reggie Jackson three home run game. Wow. And I was only seven years old. So I wasn't allowed to go with him that night. It was at night, but my mom did let me stay up late to watch it. <laughs> so I ended up, it was past my bedtime, but I ended up being able to stay up late to watch Reggie's three home run game. Uh, and, you know, talk about being in this area, too. I went to game six of the 86 World Series with my dad. You know, we weren't even Met fans and we hated the Red Sox, obviously, because we're Yankee fans. But, you know, we were there in the building when the ball went through Buckner's legs. Do you have similar stories from your childhood in baseball? I do. The first person, though, Chris, who probably indoctrinated me to baseball was my brother. I have an older brother. He's two years older than me. My dad was not a huge sports fan. My mother was probably a bigger sports fan than my dad. But once it started with my brother loving sports and principally baseball and then me, my parents seized upon that and they saw an avenue of interest and they tried to foster that as much as possible. So it was going to as many baseball games as we could when we were kids. And that often meant trying to see a doubleheader because we felt like we got, we got more uh, bang for our buck. And then you mentioned your dad passing away. I, I lost my mom and dad a while ago. I mean, my mom passed in 94. My dad passed in 95. But after my father passed away, going through some of his belongings and, and just getting things organized for what we wanted to save, my father had a huge stack of scrapbooks that I never even knew that he kept. And he just wrote on the front, Jack's articles, Jack's articles. So he was cutting out my articles from the New York Times and, and taping them into this scrapbook. And even as I tell you that story, I, I get choked up because it's just a, uh, his, his pride was, was obvious. And this was something he did on his own and, and never even told me about. So hmm. I always tell people, and I'm, I'm sure maybe you feel the same way. And we do what we do. And fortunately, we, we're in the public eye. So some people meet us and maybe they say that they, they like something that we do. My comment to them always is, if, if you like anything about me, it, it, it's because of my parents. It's because of what the groundwork that my parents laid. So if you give me a compliment, it's really a compliment to my mom and dad. My father was always trying to keep me grounded and always told me that the broadcasting thing, well, you know, it really doesn't work out for a lot of people. <laughs> and was always very much, if you want me to pay for college, you better go get a degree in something that you can use. And I have, a, I went to the business school at Fordham, actually. I have an accounting degree. But so Bob, the only I think thing, Bob Papa did the same thing. I think Papa yeah. had a business uh, degree. <laughs> yeah, I think he was. I think he's a business school, which is now the Gabelli School. But um, the only thing I learned in four years of accounting is that I didn't want to be an accountant. I, I think it drove <laughs> me more to, to be better at broadcasting. And uh, But my mother was always on the other side of, you know, your father, he's he tells everybody, you know, when you're on the radio at Fordham, like he, he tells everybody, but he tries with you, he tries to be very much like, yeah, you know, you better have a backup plan kind of thing. Um, I have to so share I one, I, I have to share one quick story with you. That's sort of similar to that. So my mother born, raised Jersey city, never left. That was her home for three summers at Fordham. I had a internship at the Jersey journal, the local newspaper, I covered Little League games, rec basketball games, whatever was going on in Jersey City. I was the little local high school uh, reporter or recreation reporter. My mother loved it because that was her newspaper. All of her friends' kids were playing. She called me Jackie. Here was Jackie writing about so-and-so's kid. So after Fordham, I got a job at the Star-Ledger for a year. And then I, I got the job at the Times. 
And I still remember to this day standing in my parents' kitchen and telling my mother, Mom, I got the job at the New York Times. And her, her reaction was very muted. I said, Mom, it's the New York Times. And she said, oh, I, I miss the days when you wrote for the Jersey Journal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit of an upgrade here, but okay, I get it. You wanted me to write about John Smith's kid in Little League, but you're, you're going to see some good stories in the Times. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, you know, you started and, and then we, we get through your, you know, you, you end up all the way here at Yes Network now, but you're also uh, an author and you've written some books and you know, Yankee books. Um, is, is, is writing book hard for you? I think writing a book, Chris, is hard for anyone. And yeah. if I, every author that I've spoken to, it's very hard there was a great line that I read recently, and I forget who said it, but I'm going to repeat it. There was a famous author or writer, and someone said to them, do you, do you like writing? And the person's response was, I like having been written. And I, I totally associate with that. But I, I do love it. I love reporting. I love the research. I love sitting down and writing. But a, but a book is, a, is an undertaking. And when I have a full-time job at Yes, and I I have to focus on that too. It becomes a challenge, but it's a challenge that I chose. I'm I'm signing the contract. I'm agreeing to do it. Uh, the last book uh, I did that's coming out in May, the 1998 Yankee book, I agreed to do that knowing that I had about 10 months to get that done. And I was not going to do a cut and paste job. I wasn't going to go back to my old articles and just regurgitate things. I was going to interview or try to interview every guy on that team and some competitors and managers and coaches. So I did a lot of the reporting and research during the season, Chris, but I did not write a word until the Yankee season ended, which was mid to late October, and the book was due on December 1st. So I wrote 70 to 75,000 words in a I was a little late on deadline. I wrote it in about in about 8 or 9 weeks. And that was a, that was a crunch. That was I'm sure you've had projects in your life where you've done this, but this was get up, eat a bowl of cereal, go in the office for the next 12 hours and, and never leave. Just, just, just grind away at writing this. But I, I do enjoy it. I'm not trying to paint a, a dreary picture. I enjoy the process. I've had a great editor that I work with. And I'm really proud of the 98 book because I think there are items and stories and interview topics in there that people are going to enjoy because it's new material. That is uh, that is coming out, right? That is not. Can they pre-order they can, that? They can pre-order that. I would love it if someone pre-ordered it. Pick, <laughs> pick your favorite bookseller. I, I, I'm a. That's the other thing about writing a book. Once you finish it, do do not hesitate to promote the heck out of it because you want people to see your work. But yeah, Absolutely. you can pre-order it now. But it's a, it'll be available on May second. It comes out. So now, is it because of the 25th year? Is that was that the impetus? One hundred percent. Publishers love anniversaries. And my editor is a gentleman named Sean Desmond with uh, Hachette Publishing. And when he asked me about it, I said, oh, that's a, that's a no brainer for me. I covered that team. I was around those guys. I, I can get those guys on the phone. I can sit down with some of them. I think that's a wonderful story to tell. And I think people will be interested in it. I, I think people will want to hear about that team. I, I call it right on the cover of the book, the greatest team ever. And I think that throughout that book, we we make that case, and not just with my voice, with, with other people chiming in as to why sure. they think it was the best team ever. Yeah, I have a I have a uh, autographed Mariano uh, Rivera photo on my wall of him on his knees after they win the World Series in '98. Um, you know, you know the the photo with his arms in the air and he's on his knees and uh, iconic photo. Um, He's one it's of in my, the book. I, if we're talking yeah. about the same picture, I'm pretty sure that picture is in the book. <laughs> yeah. um, he was always my, I, I think out of all the athletes I've ever rooted for, watched, or covered, I I don't know if I ever respected an athlete's greatness more than I have of Mariano Rivera. I always tell kids, I, I spoke to an elementary school class a couple of weeks ago, and they asked me who was my favorite person to interview I always pick David Cohn because of, because of his genius and his wisdom. But and you right wrote a there, book with David also. I wrote a book with David. Yeah. But right there with David, because of how comfortable he made you feel, was Mariano Rivera. I never felt as if it was inter interview an interview. I always felt as if it was a discussion. And one quick story on Mariano. 
My wife happened to meet him in 2009. They happened to be on the same flight. And I told Pamela, don't bother him, don't bother him, don't bother him. He's a gentleman, but don't bother him. Of course, she says hello. He was. They were both flying out to the West Coast. He must have stayed behind for the All-Star break. And then, I, I don't even know the, the machinations of it, but they were on the same flight. So when I next saw Mariano, she was still away on her business trip. And he said, I saw your wife more recently than you did, which we had a little chuckle about <laughs> it. He would, he would ask me about her every week or every two weeks. And it just so happens she ended up having a medical issue that year. And I was in a, I was kind of in a depressed state one day. And the day he asked me, I just said, without giving him a ton of details, I said, she's kind of fighting something medically, Mariano, but I'll, I'll tell you, said hello. And he just said, uh, please tell her I'm praying for her, which again, just a wonderful gesture from him. Forget about all that. Yankees get to the postseason. Chris, they win the 2009 World Series. There's such a crush of media around Mariano's locker that they bring him to a side room to do an interview. I happen to be with the Times still, and I was one of the first people to get near him. I started to ask him the first question, and he said, Jack, hold on. Before you ask me, I've been meaning to ask you, how is your wife doing? (laughs) And he's not a phony. That was not something he did for the cameras because nobody else knew. Here was a guy who just had the one of the greatest moments of his career for the whatever fifth time, and he's asking me how my wife was doing. So I tell that story as often as possible because it tells you how much of a gentleman Mariano is, and how much humility he had. He, yeah. He's he's probably the the greatest ever at a position that is so unique in sports, and to, and talk about humble beginnings, like I. Yeah. Some people come from humble beginnings because in their childhood they had they had things. But I mean, he was like he was like 18 and he was still using a, you know, a cardboard glove in Panama. Like, it's unbelievable how how late his career began. I, I sat next to his locker at Yankee Stadium in 1996. And what you just referenced, I said to him, take me back to Panama. What was it like growing up in Panama? And he reached into his locker and took out the top of a shoebox. And he said, this is what I would use for my glove. And I want to say, I want to say I was the first person to ever report that. I know that that story has become a part of his lore, but Mm. this was his first full season. And I remember as a reporter, you get excited when you know you have something electric. And when he took that cardboard top out of his locker, I said, okay, I've got to lead to this story. This is going to be something that everybody's going to want to read. Uh, Jack, how do you, part of the allure of what we do is we get to be in the ballpark for games. Um, you're in the studio. It kind of has taken you out of that. How do you connect with the team to do your job? And do you miss not being in the ballpark during the games? All all great questions. And I think what does help us now is as much as we all love face-to-face communication, a lot of our communication these days is done on our phone. I know for a fact, and I don't want to, I don't want to say the person's name, but <laughs> I I texted someone in uniform, someone who wears a Yankee uniform about an hour and a half before the game yesterday. And I got a response an hour before the game. <laughs> A question I needed an answer on. So I don't do that all the time, but I'm just giving you that as an example of I wanted to confirm and or double check on something. And this person was kind enough to get back to me. But face-to-face communication is how I've been able to be good at my job. So what I do a lot of the times, Chris, is I live in northern New Jersey. The Yes Network studios are in Stamford, Connecticut. I try and go Jersey to the Bronx, get some FaceTime with players get some nuggets that I can take back to the studio and use that on the air. Because you're right. There's, there's something about being around the players. There's something about being at the stadium. We did our pregame and postgame from Yankee stadium on opening day. And just visually looking around, I'm seeing this guy taking batting practice. I'm seeing Anthony Volpe do this with the fans. So yeah, that that's something that I've got to make sure that I, I still have those connections. And I, I do try to work very hard at that. I didn't play the game. I'm not a guy, Paul O'Neill or David Cohn or John Flaherty or Jeff Nelson or Todd Frazier, who recently joined us. 
I didn't play the game, but the the response I always come back with to people, Chris, about that in terms of being an analyst is I've never thrown a 95 mile per hour fastball or tried to hit one, but I've spoken to hundreds of players who have done both. So I've got all that in my head from what, what they've told me. And I try to bring that to the air. Well, and, and being a communicator as you are and, 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 and thinking of things as a, as a writer, you have a way of connecting all those thoughts and articulating it in a way that, that the audience can understand that maybe, you know, that's a strength that, that people like you have that maybe former athletes don't really have. I, I think, thank you for saying that. I, I think that is valuable. And I also think from having covered baseball for more than 30 years, there really isn't something that happens in a game that I haven't seen before and have had to comment on before or I've had to write about before. And also from being in clubhouses for all those years, you kind of have a feel for what's going to happen in a clubhouse after a game. And quite honestly, Chris, and I was talking to a couple of writers about this during spring training, baseball access has changed. The clubhouse used to be open for three and a half hours before a game. It was a whopping amount of time. The best access in, in professional sports. Now it's been reduced to an hour. And you have players who during that hour, they don't have to be by their locker. So that's the other thing when you ask me about about, about reaching out and touching and making sure that I see these guys. What is the worst for me is if I make that journey from Jersey to the Bronx before I go to Stamford and I'm standing there saying, there, there are five players by their locker here. Yeah. Come on, I, I I need 10 guys out here. But I, I'm not complaining about the access. I, I appreciate any player who stops and talks to us and knows that we're a conduit to getting the word out to the viewers and the fans. And uh, I just try and do my best at strengthening previous relationships and forming new relationships. Yeah, and, uh, you know, baseball is such a, uh, it's it's the soundtrack of the summer. You know, it's, um, people, their whole summer, they spend with you just seeing it's just, it's on the TV and they, they catch you after a game. And that's why I really wanted uh, to do this here as we get ready for, you know, the baseball season is just beginning. Uh, we're at a little lull in the NBA season. We kind of know where we're going to be. Playoffs haven't started yet. So, uh, that'd be a great time to connect our, uh, our audience with you, Jack. And I know personally, um, you're a runner. <laughs> right, it's true. I don't mean that you run true. away from situations, but you're a, <laughs> you're a, uh, you, you've run the New York Marathon. I have. Um, what is it about? I'd imagine there's something about running that's similar to how you described writing a book. Um, that maybe the process is very hard, but you probably get a lot of satisfaction after it's over. I love to run, and you just hit on part of the reason why. Every time I go for a run, Chris, first of all, I always have the headphones and I, I got to listen to some music. I, mm -hmm. I, I want to hear the music to yes. help me along the way. But I also try and tackle a topic or two in my head. Perhaps my wife and I are going over something and there's an issue. It could be something as simple as, hey, where, where do you want to go on vacation next? Or, hey, we, we might want to visit uh, our cousins here. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be some grand issue. But as I said, I take that time to sort of figure out how do I want to move forward on this. And I, I do kind of get lost. I, I don't really, I mean, I might use my phone for music, but I don't really want to have to respond to texts or calls while I'm doing that. And the, the reason I started to get into running is very simple. My wife had a surprise 30th birthday party for me. And when I saw the pictures come back, I said, man, you're too heavy. And so I've been running since I was 30. So I've been running almost 30 years now. And I've found if I do enough running, I can have that bowl of ice cream and that donut and that whatever <laughs> yes. when I feel like it and not feel guilty. And you're, uh, you mentioned you're, you're always, you got, you know, you're listening to music as you do it. And that's probably something that it's, it's part of what, what you enjoy about it, right? You get that chance to, and I know you, if you follow Jack on Twitter, he's always putting out uh, the songs that he's been running to, you know, or songs that are being played uh, if you're at the stadium before a game or in spring training and you'll, you'll comment on something. And it's a, you have a wide interest, a wide array of musical tastes. Could you give I, us something that, yeah. <laughs> where, where does your, your musical taste come from? 
So again, I mentioned my brother with baseball. I had an older brother who, and this is really going to date us, although I, I still like vinyl. I had an older brother who was really, I think, ahead of his time in listening to music. And growing up, if you're from New Jersey, of course we loved Springsteen. And I still love Springsteen. I'm going to go see him on this tour. But my brother was a real new wave punk fan. Mm. And I kind of gravitated to a lot of those same bands, uh, The Clash, The Ramones, Elvis Costello, Talking Heads. But I've also tried to keep up on music. And I'm a big reggae fan. Uh, I, I try to listen to things that I think I would have listened to back then. So Tame Impala, Cage the Elephant, the 1975. I, it's funny. People are sometimes amused or surprised when I, I will drop a, a song in there or a band and they'll say, you like them? I mean, I, I like rap music. There, there's a lot of rap that I, I still listen to. Back at Fordham, it was, uh, it was Run DMC and LL Cool J and, and then you move on to what people are listening to these days. So, yeah, I, I like listening to anything and everything. Uh, I love live shows. When people talk about all that we lost during the pandemic, and I mean, some people lost loved ones, so I'm not trying to equate. But I, I missed going to see bands live. That, that's something that is a, is a real nice break for me. And it, it's, it's a way to get away sometimes from the sports and just go listen to some live music. Yeah, I know. You'll, you'll chat about on social media about like little small venue you may have seen a band in what's the best little you know outside of the big arenas like a little venue that you like to see live music there was a place in hoboken new jersey called maxwell's now the restaurant and the bar is still there they they've kind of streamlined the amount of music that they have i, I don't want to send them people away from them they might still have some bands there but I, I saw a lot of a lot of good bands there, and growing up in Jersey City, that was only five or ten minutes from my house. I met my wife in Hoboken, so I have a <laughs> I have a soft spot for Hoboken. But Chris, honestly, any anywhere that you could hear some music, I'm actually going to uh, Red Rocks in Colorado in a couple oh, of weeks. Historic venue. It's historic venue that I've always wanted to visit, and I'm going because Bob Marley's Five Sons are all performing together in a concert. They're going to do some wow. of their dad's music and they're going to do some of their own music. Now I've seen Ziggy Marley a bunch of times, but I to have all five brothers, that's something that may never happen again. So uh, wow. I'm, I'm making the trip out there to, to check that out. Yeah, and it's kind of a um, spiritual place to yes. go, right? Red Rocks? Yes. Uh, it's it built into the into these red rock canyon mountain kind of thing out there in, in Colorado. It's uh, it's wild. I'm a huge Pearl Jam guy, and I just had mm -hmm. um, there was a uh, we did Stephen Hyden, who's a who's a music critic, uh, had written a book about Pearl Jam, and uh, we just had him on the program here a few weeks ago. And it's funny, I get more texts about that show than any that I've done so <laughs> far. Um, and he taught, and in the book he talked about this show they were a few years into their career but how it was sort of a of a turning point in their career the way they approached the show at red rocks and the one time they played there. there there's a couple of things funny music is and you mentioned it here there's a nostalgic quality to it much like baseball i feel you know like you, you mentioned mm -hmm. your brother got you into stuff i, I hear that so much about you know, baseball, it's a connection to my, my dad, or it's a connection to my brother or whoever it may be that got you into it. So a lot of times people gravitate to the way it used to be. And they, and they, and they'll say, well, the music isn't the same as when I listened to it. And you, you've embraced the, the new and you, and you're, you're into finding new things. And I think baseball is similar too, where you have all these, you know, rule changes coming in and how do uh, the old timers don't want the game changed. And now here we are trying to change the game for the new generation. Um, some of the new things that have been that have been so talked about in baseball, you know, it's interesting that the pitch clock thing that everybody talks about, it's been embraced universally, I think, by the the old timers and the new guys, let alone sports writers who just want the game to finish <laughs> a little quicker. But I almost feel because the speeding up of the game. It's actually reminding me the game now looks the way it used to look in the 70s and 80s where guys got it and threw it. We, we've lost dead time, Chris. That's all we've lost. 
And who needs a pitcher staring in for signs? And I know they have the pitch come now. Who needs a batter fiddling with his batting gloves? So I am on board with all of these changes. I have a ton of respect for Buck Showalter. He was really the first manager that I ever covered in the major leagues. And he spent a couple of years with us in the studio at Yes. And Buck, I thought, said it perfectly. Everyone talks about the time of game. It's never been about the time or the length of the game. It's been about the pace and the rhythm. Yeah, exactly. And Buck, while he was out of baseball, was on I, – I, he was involved in major leagues moving forward with rules and things like that. I don't know the exact name in the committee. But he kept talking about that, the pace and the rhythm. And I've stolen that idea and I've said the same exact thing because yeah. we're not losing anything. All we're losing is clutter. So now the game does look like the way it did look in the 60s or the 70s before everything just would grind to a halt. So I saw some numbers today. I think through the first four days of the season, the uh, time of game is reduced by 28 minutes. So crazy. sign me up. I'm all for it. You're right. The pace is the thing because I I remember watching some games on, you know, Yesa put on these classic games. And I remember remember being struck by the – the Gidry 18 strikeout game against the Angels that year, watching that again on Yes one time. And I go, wow, Gidry just got the ball and threw it. Got the ball and threw it. Like yes. the pace is exactly right. The pace is what it is. And even when I look at, you know, people, they, they you know, the, the shift, it's funny because I'm all for, you know, you take whatever competitive advantage you can get. And if you're going to work hard and, and you know where to place the, the guys, it's great. But even the NBA over the years, listen, added a three-point line, uh, put in illegal defenses, you know, go, change the way they uh, you can guard a player because, you know, you're saying um, we want the game to look better. And when I would watch a game on TV, a baseball game, I remember, you know, when you, when you would see a ball off the bat, you had a pretty good idea of whether or not it's going to be a hit. <laughs> Right. Because, you know, if it's hit in the hole or it's hit up the middle, it's going to be a hit with these shifts and the way they would be realigning the defense for every play for every batter. I didn't know it was a hit anymore off the bat. And it was it was actually affecting my enjoyment of the game. It became very frustrating for a lot of people. Imagine being one of those left handed hitters. I think of a Mark Teixeira, a big poppy. I, though, Chris, thought that hitters should have figured out a way to conquer the shift. I know in talking to Paul O'Neill, he talked about how he learned to keep his hands in and and sort of guide the ball or try and swing a little later and hit the ball the other way. But I became a convert to eliminating extreme shifts after listening to a lot of smart people, including Theo Epstein. As you said, there's a way that the game is supposed to be played. There, there, There should be a shortstop playing shortstop, who if he does make a great play in the outfield, it's because he dashed 150 feet. It's not because he's standing right where the guy hits the ball 80% yeah. of the time. So I, I, I am a a fan of the new rules, and I, I think that the game is going to improve because of it. I think we're going to see more athleticism. I think we're going to see more action. And I hope that that attracts the younger generation, and that that's a big part of what why baseball is doing this. All right, Jack Curry, we haven't really even gotten into it. The Yankees this year, there's a long way to go. Um, pitching, maybe. I mean, we're already into bullpen games, three games into the year. This is how baseball has changed too, right? A little bit. It, it's how it's changed. I mean, Clark Schmidt only gave them three-plus innings the other day, so that's why they had to get into their bullpen early. Yeah. Brito's a kid. They only used him five innings. But Cole looked good on opening day. I, I think this Yankee team is the best team in the division. What they do have to do right now is – They need to tread water until Severino comes back, until they get their first look at Rodon, until Bader comes back and they can put him in the outfield. So you want to hope, if you're the Yankees, that you've got your complete team by sometime in early May and have have a strong April. Go out there and nobody's saying you have to go 20 and 8, but but don't go 12 and 16 either. Figure out a way to have a a strong April and, and keep yourself solid until you get those guys back. What about the idea of, especially with more people in the playoffs, more teams in the playoffs now, because people talk all the time about, well, this team is built for the regular season and not for the postseason, or this team's built for a postseason. 
how do you, how can you distinguish between the two and how can you how can you build from one over the other? Derek Jeter said something to me once that always resonates. He said the the best team doesn't always win at all. The the hottest team does. So you want to figure out a way that you are playing your best in October. And when you look at some of the Yankees' recent struggles and postseason, the swing and miss comes up a lot. And they talked about that in the offseason. They lost four games to the Houston Astros and the ALCS. Three of those games were actually winnable games. And the 50 strikeouts across four games is, is not something that you want to see happen. They have power hitters. They have guys like Judge and Stanton who are going to hit a ton of home runs, but they're also going to have some swing and miss in their game. So I do think it's important to try and put the ball in play. You need to have a two-strike approach. Even Judge this year in spring training talked about that, less of a leg, leg kick with two strikes. So I don't know that the magic formula exists, Chris, for getting to October and suddenly being able to turn it on, but elite bullpen will help and a relentless lineup will help. I know from working on this 1998 book, one of the words that came up when both opponents and members of that team talked about that team is that lineup was relentless. Mm -hmm. There was nowhere to hide. One through nine. Uh, You have Brocious hitting eighth or ninth and knocking in 100 runs. So it just sort of told you how relentless that lineup was. Yeah, I think I just always think though if they're gonna and they that team was great in the regular season and the postseason. Yeah, like it, it you can't build from one or the other. It, you might get hot, and you know maybe people mistake hot for being built for the postseason. But you know, I I think that was kind of if you're gonna build a team that can win, and and they should be able to win in April, and they should be able to win in October. You know, pretty much. I mean, I know if you get one hot starter, it could take you through a postseason, but. Um, Jack, before I let you go, I, I subject all of my interview subjects to this. Um, you talk about relentless, uh, the great Jim Valvano, the, 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 the late great coach, he had that speech at the ESPYs, mm-hmm. um, you know, the never give up speech. And that's always been important to me in my life, what I've gone through. And I, uh, I always ask everybody that he, he had said, you need to do three things to have a full life, three things every day to have a full life. You need to, to laugh. You need to, to cry or have your emotions moved a little bit, or, you, and you need to think, spend some time and thought. Um, so I just, I always throw this out there. What, what is something recently or something that what makes Jack Curry laugh? What's your sense of humor like? It's a great question. And that Valvano speech, by the way, talk about something that stayed with you that moment and stays with you forever. And if we could all follow that credo, I think we'd be we'd be a lot happier and a lot calmer. My wife makes me laugh. I mean, I, we've been married 31 years and there there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of days where maybe you don't have something that you want to laugh about, but the, the, she makes me laugh because she she knows me better than anyone. I could do a 90 minute post game show where, where I felt that I I made eight or 10 great points and we interviewed this player and everything looked great. And she would have a funny line about your tie was crooked in the third <laughs> segment or something like that. So I would say it, it, she, she makes me laugh uh, more than more than anybody who has ever known me. And I think that's that's a great quality to have in your uh, your spouse. I get that a lot when I ask that question. And I, and I think it's maybe that's the key to staying together. You know, the ones who are together, it's like they say their spouse makes them laugh. Maybe that's the key. 100%. And all these books that I've written, I mean, she is such a support system in editing, reading, giving me her opinions. And she loves the 98 book because it's got my name on it and it's my <laughs> writing. As much as she liked the Cone and the O'Neill books, those books were written in her voice, their voices. So. Yeah. She's told me right away, oh, this is my favorite book that you've done. So she's, she's a, a great cheerleader in addition to a great wife. Um, as far as your emotion, you know, what makes you cry? I don't mean it in a bad way sometimes, but, you know, just something that could be a song. It could be anything that that really makes you feel your emotions or something you've watched, things like that. I always talk about that with, you know, movies and music or that for me it really moves me emotionally. What's something that you might have? What that. what uh, what year did your your dad pass away, Chris? 
You know, he had Alzheimer's for a while, so I feel like I lost him for a long time. But then in 2019, he passed away. Yeah. So the thing that that would make me cry, and I and I don't allow myself to go there all the time, is thinking about the things that my my parents haven't seen mm. that have that have happened in my life. Or my brother has two sons, and one of them got married recently. And I actually was the officiant for his marriage, which was a great honor that he asked me to officiate his wedding, my nephew Ian. And there were moments throughout that day where I thought about my my mom and dad not being able to see that. So that, that, that's that's something that that those emotions I think are are there for anyone who has lost someone that was close to them in their life. So, yeah. like I said, I don't allow myself to go there too often. I'd I'd rather think of the the joyous moments as opposed to think about what I had as opposed to maybe what you don't have. I. Uh... You know, and music does that a lot for me sometimes. Just makes you feel something that it, it brings up something. And I remember, um, you know, talking about it when I, it was like a month after my dad passed and I'm listening to Eddie Vedder on the Howard Stern show. And he does on just an acoustic guitar. And this is, he does um, the Warren Zevon song, Keep Me In Your Heart For A While. Oh yeah. Love Warren Zevon. Oh and you know his and and just that song about knowing he was going to die and and telling his wife you know just when you're doing things around the house keep me in your heart you know that's the kind of stuff that really gets me yeah well music they can do that in in a lot of ways good and sometimes more tear jerking but yeah that yeah. that Warren Zevon song that that is clearly yeah. one that I mean, he, the guy put out a whole album, as you said, knowing knowing that he was going to pass away. Talk about having an amount of courage and strength to be able to do that. Yeah, but but getting us to connect with our emotions, I think, is what Jim Balvano was getting at. You know, like uh, feel stuff. You know, during the day. Mm-hmm. Um, the think part, I always say, you know, there's a big message board outside, Oculus outside Barclays Center. Everybody coming out of the subway or going into the arena can see it. If there was something you could put up there, you know, a billboard kind of thing where the masses can see it, get your point across, something to think about. What would you want to give people something to think about? What would you say? Here's what I would say. In a world where you can be anything, be kind. Just be kind. And it'll come back to you. I always think of uh, the opportunities I've had and I feel like I've had two dream jobs in my life, a baseball writer for the New York Times, a baseball announcer for the Yes Network, well, if you get to that mountaintop, so to speak, or if you get to the the top of the mountain, don't knock the don't knock the ladder away for anybody else. Put the ladder in place and help those people come up to the mountaintop as well. And I'm a big advocate in doing that. And I I mentor a lot of kids, high school and college kids, and if they show a lot of passion, I, I show an equal amount of passion in trying to trying to help along the way. But it doesn't just have to be in your career. It, it could be in any anything that you do on any given day. I love that message. And I think that's what's connected a lot of us Fordham guys over the years. You know, we've always looked out for each other and helped each other out. That was part of it. My son's a freshman, by the way, at Fordham, at WFUV. And, uh, and I, that was part of the thing, you know, pushing him along, like be part of this that we have going. Was he, uh, did he go to any of the hoop games? Was he part of Rose? Throw? Yeah. How did we get through an hour? We didn't even talk about Fordham basketball. <laughs> what a season. And, and they, the fact that they have Ergo there, they sign him to the extension, and, and Eddie Cole doing a great job on the athletic director side. Very, very enjoyable to see that season. Were, were they good when you, I remember when you were there. NIT, okay. NIT, 19, 20 wins. Uh, Penders was the coach. Uh, they had a good backcourt, T- Tony McIntosh and Jerry Hobby. But yeah, I couldn't get over the hump to get an NCAA bid. Yeah, my senior year, we went to the NCAA tournament. I did that game for WFUV. And unfortunately they have not been back since. It's amazing. Let, let's hope that changes. It's, yeah. This year was a lot of fun. So let's hope that changes. What I'm hoping is that my son will be doing the game the next time they get in. Oh, that would be nice. That would be a great that, story. Joe DeBarry's already got that story ready to go. <laughs> That'd be great. I would love that. What's his first name, Chris? Uh, Chris, Chris, same, okay. same first name. So, um, Jack, we really appreciate you doing this. I, I love talking to you. I, I'd also add to the Oculus, you know, your your thing about being kind and then also um, pre-order the <laughs> book by Jack Curry and the 1998 New York Yankees. What's the, the was, title again? The, the exact title? It's just, yeah, it's uh, the inside story of the greatest baseball team ever, the 1998 Yankees. 
Uh, I appreciate you saying that. And Chris, it was a pleasure to talk to you. And I, I want to be one of many who have told you how much of an inspiration you are to so many. And I'm glad to be able to say that we share a college and that we have a friendship. So thanks for having me on. This has been so much fun. Thank you, Jack. All right, my thanks to Jack Curry. The book, The 1998 Yankees, the inside story of the greatest baseball team ever. Jack gave you a lot of good things to listen to, the stuff he likes to listen to when he runs. I'm going to give you something to watch, as I always do here at the end. And it was certainly something that will make you laugh, cry, and think. It is from the makers of the show, Ted Lasso, and it's on Apple TV. It is called Shrinking with Jason Siegel. Not like the bird, but Siegel. Like from uh, How I Met Your Mother, Jason Siegel. And Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Jason Siegel. And he's terrific in it. But the guy who really steals the show is 80-year-old Harrison Ford. God bless him. Love Harrison Ford. He's terrific in this show. And he will make you laugh in this show. So that's my recommendation of what to watch. The funniest scene in the show involves a song from Phoebe Bridgers. Not to be confused with Mikhail Bridges. This is Bridgers. Phoebe Bridgers. A song entitled, I Know the End. It is the final song on her just outstanding album from 2020 called Punisher. A song called, I Know the End. And we have come to the end of the Voice of the Nets podcast. My thanks to my producer slash engineer, Isaac Lee, Steve Goldberg. My thanks to our guest today, Jack Curry. Talk to you again next week. I'm Chris Carino. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing to the Voice of the Nets. 